episode 410 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you commercial-free by Steptoe and Johnson, and brought to you this time uh, remotely from San Francisco, which is where I am because of the RSA conference and mainly uh, to show grandsons around San Francisco. We are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express here do not reflect those of our firms, our institutions, our clients, our families, even our pets. Joining me for the news roundup, Jane Bambauer, who's professor of law at the University of Arizona, Mark McCarthy from uh, Brookings Institution and Georgetown Law, Dave Itell, uh, information security specialist and founder of the Itell Foundation, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host of today's program. Let's jump into a story that got a lot of, it got a kind of brief play. Everybody thought it was a big deal, and then no one knew what to make of it, which I think is fair. It may be that it was over done. Paul Nakasone, the head of Cyber Command, announced that U.S. hackers had done offensive operations or at least had done hunting forward in support of Ukraine. And everybody said, oh, what does this mean? Dave, what does it mean? The article that I think was most public on this came out from Sky News, which I think is a very interesting uh, choice of venue. And in it, General Paul Nakasone is explaining how he has done quite a number of hunt forward operations using Cybercom, obviously, to essentially support Ukraine during the military operation that's being conducted currently. And I think there's a number of very interesting features in the story. The first of all is that he's in Tallinn in Estonia at a NATO conference. Obviously, for people who are not super familiar with the cyber world, Tallinn, the Tallinn document is the big cyber document that's come out of there, which is very interesting. He's in some senses selling hunt forward operations. And I think it's important to, to notice that like internal to the US government, you're having a lot of discussions about what cyber operations do need to look at. So you're looking at these things being sold. And again, he sort of highlighted that they're lawful, that they were conducted with civilian oversight of the military, and, you know, through higher level policy from the Department of Defense, which is his way of overtly communicating to Russia, and of course, to our adversaries and other allies. And so really, the only controversial thing in his statement was that it was in support of Ukraine, who is currently involved in a conflagration. Actually, I don't know how to pronounce that word, it turns out. Conflagration, (laughs) yes. Conflagration? All right. I'm like, wow. (laughs) So hunting forward means getting into other people's networks to watch what the attackers are doing, right? It does. And his sales pitch there is that hunting forward is going to protect the United States in some larger sense because we'll discover you know, implants or Trojans that are on Ukrainian networks, and then we'll inoculate ourselves and the rest of the world using that information. So I just literally five seconds ago saw the Russians respond to this, on Twitter at least, and they said what you would expect them to say, which is that if anything really bad happens to us, something really bad will happen to you, which is exactly what we would expect. So a lot of this is exactly the kind of communications you would expect between two long-term adversaries trying to make sure escalation doesn't happen. And there was a lot of hand-wringing on the Twitter, you know, cyber policy forums about potential escalation from these statements. And those are the ones that I think you're referring to when you say there was, you know, a lot of, you know, maybe a little bit overblown. But it's worth saying things are happening. 
So I think that's the summary. Things are happening. The things you expect are happening. So I'm going to argue that uncontrolled escalation of cyber operations is the new cyber Pearl Harbor. It's something everybody talks about that doesn't happen. You're exactly right. But that doesn't mean it's not possible to have things that you aren't, you know, wanting to have happen and that we're being very careful to communicate, right? Like, so I think showing that we are communicating in times of war or times of potential escalation is important, even if the escalation is not going to happen. Yeah. And our military has totally bought that idea. Not clear our adversary militaries buy that, but maybe. There is value to them as well in talking to us. Uh, They learn a lot and they give away a little uh, from their point of view. Okay. Let's go back to a case we talked about and I got wrong last time, which was the Texas social media case. I thought it was highly unlikely that the uh, Supreme Court was going to undo the stay that the Fifth Circuit, Eleventh Circuit, had uh, imposed. But they did. Five to four, but still they did. And they wrote an opinion, which we didn't have. We didn't have the result either. Mark, having looked at the opinion and the vote lineup, what do we know now that we didn't know a week ago? Well, it's worth reminding ourselves what the Texas law did before we get into this interesting opinion. If you remember, it bans viewpoint discrimination on social media, but it permits other kinds of content moderation. And it's also got some transparency measures, things like uh, disclosure of content rules and appeals rights for those whose material has been taken down. And, And the sentence is worth looking at in some detail. It says what I think is undeniable, that the Texas law is novel, and it also says that the social media business model is novel, and it says sometimes we allow laws like the Texas law, and sometimes we don't. Tornillo would block such a law for newspapers, but Pruneyard would allow it for shopping centers, and Turner allowed it for cable operators. And then they say it's not at all obvious how these precedents should apply to large social media companies. Now, that's actually a pretty big deal because the industry and many scholars uh, have argued that the First Amendment is a unitary thing. It applies uniformly to all the companies, regardless of the medium. And, And the dissent says, no, it depends on the technology and on the business model. And then Alito is careful. He says that they've not formed a definitive view on these novel legal questions, but he thinks it's an open enough thing so that they should have allowed the law to go into effect. He does something very interesting, too. He quotes from a a, a 1932 Louis Brandeis dissent in the case, an ICE case, a new state, and that dissent looked favorably on the ability of legislators to address changing social and economic conditions. I mean, in that that case, a, a local jurisdiction required firms to get a certificate of public convenience and necessity before getting into the ICE business. Brandeis would have upheld that, provided the action wasn't arbitrary or capricious. The dissent is famous in some of the antitrust circles as making the case that companies with a central position in the economy can be treated like public utilities. The neo-Brandeisian crowd, especially our friend Lena Khan at the FTC, is probably pretty happy about that particular reference. On on the substance of the bill itself, he talks about the viewpoint neutrality part of the bill and quotes the the famous Supreme Court case associated saying that the Texas law might very well be a permissible attempt 
to prevent repression of freedom of speech by private interests. You might remember that case as the one that established the goal of diverse and antagonistic sources of information as a fundamental principle of communications policy. The dissenter also analogizes social media companies to cable companies and says that neither of them generally convey ideas or messages that they've endorsed. And this suggests that the dissent would look favorably uh, on treating social media companies largely as platforms for the speech of others. And it even it, it, it evokes a kind of market power rationale for content regulation of social media companies. It says the law applies only to the biggest companies, and those are the entities that possess some measure of common carrier like market power. So I, I have to say, all this sounds pretty plausible to me. I realize that the First Amendment doctrine is probably not his strongest point. But the real problem here is he only got three votes for that proposition. Uh, let me ask Jane, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, how come he only got three votes? Well, because I actually think that although it's true that there is some debate among scholars and policymakers and whatnot about whether Pruneyard and Turner broadcasting on one hand is the better analogy or Tornillo and Hurley is the better analogy. I, I am in the camp that it's obvious that Hurley and Tornillo are the better analogy, that to get to something like Pruneyard or Turner broadcasting, you need, you know, by the Supreme Court's opinion's own terms, you need something that's very sticky where people can't go from one source of information to another easily. That's not true of these internet platforms. And and actually, I think the AP case is even an even worse analogy because that involved the AP engaging in just straight up normal antitrust coordinated anti-competitive behavior. So that, you know, it's in the context of a new source market, but the conduct that they engaged in, you know, they could have been in the market for widgets and it would have applied just as easily. So I think that's one reason there aren't very many votes is that under cases like, you know, Reno and Hurley and just the kind of general trend in a libertarian notion of a First Amendment, that's not, it's not, has not been chipped away enough to call this a close case based on existing precedent. So if the court wanted to, it could get there and it wouldn't be doing, it wouldn't be doing Roe v. Wade type damage to precedent if it said, yeah, no, we think this is more like AP and less like Tornillo and therefore we're going to uphold the law. But they'd have to be moving, they would be changing the law. And the question raised by this stay in motion is, do you guys want to change the law? And it looks to me as though there's only three votes to change the law. Right. Yeah. Can, can I raise one other issue that's lurking here that I think may be even more significant? All that was really a discussion on the, the viewpoint neutrality point. Yeah. I was but gonna... on, on transparency, the dissent looked uh, uh, favorably on the Zauderer standard, which is that right. much, much lower burden than even intermediate scrutiny. And, and when the issue is disclosure of purely factual and uncontroversial information about terms of service, you know, you can go with that lower uh, threshold. And all you have to show is that the transparency rules are not unjustified or unduly burdensome. And the court noticed that if the industry position that these transparency requirements are facially unconstitutional, if that gets upheld, it could have widespread implications with regard to other disclosures that are required under law. 
And by the way, the, the 11th Circuit had a similar take on this. They were explicit in yeah. using Zouderer in, in upholding it as the right standard for transparency requirements. I think this is, is probably the most significant part of the decision, not the other stuff, because it does vindicate an approach of consumer protection as a way of getting at content moderate content moderation regulation, and it might justify a wide range of regulatory measures, probably not the viewpoint neutrality point, but but a lot of the other things about explanations and notices and reports and risk assessments and so on that are being thought about in in Congress, not so much in the states, but are being thought about in Congress. Which have been knocked out in both of these decisions pretty much as sort of a caboose to the big First Amendment discussion. But I think that is where the industry position is weakest, Jane. Yeah, I agree. This is sort of the sleeper issue. And yes, this is where the state's claims arguments are the strongest. And uh, cases like Zotter, but also just like disclosure rules related to, you know, ingredients lists and stuff also show that in general, the First Amendment is more permissive. However, I don't think it would be such a terrible thing if the First Amendment pays a little more attention to disclosure requirements and has some more fodder in order to figure out the distinction between purely factual disclosures, which follows Otter, versus kind of ideologically driven disclosures, the kind of disclosure systems that are really meant to kind of, you know, nudge people or scare people into taking a different course of action. And there's some interesting lower court, like appellate level court cases on this, trying to distinguish between, you know, labeling GMOs or labeling meat as a process in the US and that sort of thing. And it's not a trivial question. And it's a very interesting one. And I do think actually these laws are extremely burdensome for the companies and they would reduce the amount of content moderation or the speed of content moderation. And so both sides have a good argument, but I I think this is where the position is the strongest. It is burdensome and it couldn't happen to a nicer valley in my view. (laughs) Uh, uh, So, okay. Well, the other signal that we're getting here is the court's taking one of these cases, is my Absolutely. guess. Absolutely. Yeah, this is not going to die at the lower level. It's going to go up to the Supremes. All right. Okay. So let's go to to China, where Git, the GitHub competitor, Gitty, suddenly woke up and discovered that the Chinese government was suspending and preventing a whole bunch of content for open source coding. And Jane... This is really interesting because China has tended to think open source is a great way of end running the big proprietary uh, software systems that come from the West. But now they're discovering that they're not entirely happy with the way open source is actually being written and promulgated. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say one reason reason I wanted to take on this story is that I wanted to try to get a better understanding of what the Chinese government saw as so sort of threatening about this uh, open source market. And I still don't have a good sense. Part of it is that I don't read Mandarin and a lot of the most interesting source material is written on Giddy itself. But in any case, yes, what we know is that thousands of coders suddenly had their open source codes locked and hidden from, from public view while it was being manually reviewed. And the theories are that like the commenting on the source code and the, maybe the names for variables contained terms or phrases or, I don't know, arguments or something that 
that run against uh, Chinese government policy. And so it made me wonder if maybe Giddy code developers were using Giddy as a kind of a form of a social network through the comments or, you know, is that your well, sense, Stuart? No, I I, 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 if I had to guess, it's because they discovered that there was profanity in the comments. and Right. So humor. in the comments, though, it's just... Yeah. The, uh, the and they just said, oh, we can't have that. My guess is it wasn't a very smart decision. It could be no. that there are other things that they're worried about, but I suspect somebody read a bunch of comments and said, well, you just can't say that. And if that's the case, it's not a highly significant decision, except that the only reason people use Giddy in China, as far as I can tell, is it's faster to, you know, you can work with it. You don't have to go across the Great Firewall to get uh, the information. And so it's just more convenient. Yeah. But if it turns out I that mean, you can occasionally I just want to push back on you a little bit there, Stuart. Okay. Giddy's really good. It's a really good okay. product. Like, it's really well designed. And if you want to, like, link to other Chinese projects, like if you're yep. doing MindSpore or something else with Tencent, right? Like, all of it's working together. It's in your native language. That's not a bad thing. Yep. Right. So it is very polished and, and nice. And I think one of the downsides in America, obviously, is we think that the Chinese can't write great software. And in, in fact, Giddy's really good. So but if, but if it's, it's going to be, uh, yeah, if it's going to be clogged with occasional lockups, it, it's yes. not something you want to lie. Keep in mind, lie. Microsoft does the same thing to GitHub. Right, like mm -hmm. GitHub is owned by Microsoft. If you are writing software that competes with Microsoft, why would you use GitHub? It makes no <laughs> sense to me. Or like security software, for example, like you would want to use something that's not Microsoft. And Giddy is actually great. So even outside of China, people would use Giddy. There are good reasons. Okay. Wait, right, so, so does does Microsoft? I get that Microsoft owns GitHub. Does that mean that do they actually purge open source software based no. on? They, they, they have in the past done security, like if you have an exploit or a security piece of software that they think poses an imminent danger, they can turn that off. And there was a huge hullabaloo. Then they published like a policy on it. And, you know, some of my best friends work at GitHub. But like the reality is, is that it is still owned by Microsoft. You have to acknowledge when you put something on GitHub that if Microsoft, you know, wants to, they can shut it down. It's the equivalent of content moderation for open source. Is my sense right. is that there's, there are antisocial open source projects in Microsoft's view, and we probably share 90% of their views about what's antisocial. Right. right. But possibly other people don't, right? So th yeah. this is going to be a big theme. This is a theme. It's not just China. It's going to be a theme of like, how do we control the open source world as yeah. we go forward? I am still struck by the fact that 10% of the contributions to open source come from China which strikes me as way low given their population of coders and raises questions whether the Chinese can really shape the future of open source. Well, depending on the project, and I think so, for example, if you look at like the Linux kernel, it's something like 15% of the commits are from Chinese developers, yeah. which is a, a huge number. So it, I think that also just speaks to the, the size of the open source market and how important it is. And I think 10% is, is quite a bit, really, depending on what project it is. Okay. So why, why don't we go to the other weird Chinese story? There is now reporting suggesting that somebody in China with access to classified Chinese tank schematics 
has released them, which, you know, might be cyber activism, except that they appear to have released it in order to prove a point and win a point in a debate over how the Chinese tank should be portrayed in World of Warcraft style games. I love this story. And it also, it's on Task and Purpose, which is not a news website that comes up a huge amount nope. on this podcast, <laughs> but it's a great one. So there's a really popular tank fighting game. And by really popular, I mean your teenagers playing it right now called War Thunder. And it's owned by Gaijin Entertainment, which turns out to be a massive Hungarian company. With, like massive in the sense that it's responsible for 10% of all Hungarian IT industry profit. And it's the largest IT taxpayer in the country. That's and, impressive because I use the uh, PowerPoint substitute from Hungary that I love. So the Hungarians have some good products. They do. And it's played by, you know, I actually asked my kid, I'm like, how popular is this? He's like, well, there's 50,000 people playing it right now. Right. So, <laughs> so I'm like, all right, cool. And so the very popular OSN technical Twitter account who's been doing, you know, Ukrainian stuff, you know, that's really very good and who is looking for a job. So someone should pick them up. He first reported that someone leaked detailed and presumably classified or at least non-public information in Mandarin about the Chinese main battle tank munition to the game forums to say that, like, when it hits other tanks, they're definitely going to go boom a lot harder than the game was saying. And I, I thought, first of all, that's amazing and really very funny. But also, this is the third time this has happened for this game. It's like, people really care. And they care to the point of, like, a lot of classified information hitting these forums to prove that their stuff is just a lot cooler than, you know, American stuff or whatever it is. Um, so we need, and, we, need a, we need a CIA operation in this Hungarian firm to subtly downgrade performance of Chinese <laughs> tanks in the areas where we're not sure how good they are. <laughs> I mean, that would be very sophisticated. I would applaud the officer who put that plan together uh, in, you know, it's sad that we blew it on the podcast, but <laughs> the reality is, is that this is just one of those, I feel like it's a very telling story to where like the world is right now, if that makes any sense, like information security is super hard. You're at RSA. RSA has had the same keynotes for 20 years. So it's hard. Yeah. It's a hard problem, right? So the second thing is people love video games and people have egos and it all feeds together into this great little little breakfast that we can all snack on. We always used to say at, at NSA, the, the, the worst thing you could do is let our engineers talk to engineers from outside the, uh, the agency because engineers just cannot stop talking about what they know. And now it turns out gamers the same. And it doesn't matter if they're Chinese gamers or uh, Ukrainian uh, gamers. They're going to talk about what they know. It's very it's reassuring in some ways. Uh, it's nice to know we're not the only ones with big leak problems. Well, I think also I can't even imagine the Chinese prosecuting whoever this person is because they're probably going to him. He's like the most patriotic person in China you've ever met. And yep. so, you know, like it's going to be one of those deals. But I, anyway, a great story. Highly recommend a little bit of, you know, something a little funny for the podcast. Task and purpose. Okay, sounds good. This may turn out to be humor. The House Commerce Committee both sides, the ranking member and the chairman, have come up with a compromise on data privacy that is less regulatory than the uh, Senate 
Commerce Committee draft, which doesn't have a lot of uh, bipartisan support. And they're trying to push it through before the election. Uh, Jane, what are their chances? Well, okay, so there's a lot of interest in pushing it through because of the staff changes that will happen in the committee. And so I guess there's a consensus that it's now or never. But the trouble with privacy law is always the same problem with privacy law at the federal level, which is that there is a fundamental disagreement about what needs protecting and how. And so I would still give this, you know, even though I, I think there's some chance that this this bill could be whittled into something that, that provokes a compromise and that um, preempts a lot of state law, I think it still runs a, a high risk of not being a, you know passable anyways because of the substance. So first of all, you're right that it's seen as a kind of privacy law because of what it does with preemption, although I think there seems to be some error with their preemption section because it doesn't seem to preempt the California Privacy Protection Act. It only preempts the PRA. Now, if you look at the exceptions, it, I think this is a mistake or something. It lists the statute, the C, CPPA, it, as an exception. It's, um, I, I don't uh, know, I'm, I'm confident it, this will be cleaned up if I'm... Yeah, it, it lists the security under the California law, but the rest of it's gone. Okay. Oh, so it's a specific provision of CPPA. Okay. Right. So it preempts state laws. It constrains enforcement somewhat in ways that I think are good. But on the substance, it still requires basically what California law requires as well. So, you know, data collectors have to minimize what they collect and it has to be reasonably necessary to the specific purpose of the data collection. Consumers don't have to pay for privacy. So that is a website can't give two options, one that uh, doesn't sell user data, one that does at different prices or at different service levels. So that has to be the same. So this to me is a big flaw because it's like a price control. Like basically you cannot offer a, a, a free or cheaper version of Hulu, for example, that uses data more aggressively. It incorporates BIPA, so it incorporates Illinois' biometric privacy law. So oh, basically, gag me with a spoon. <laughs> um, th there is an exception for law enforcement, though. So private industry can't use facial recognition, but law enforcement can. It requires, it, it's a little unclear, either opt-in or opt-out for transfer of internet search and browsing data. And kind of like the Connecticut law, it creates a kind of do not collect or a, a single unified signal that every you know website and data collector needs to recognize as a sort of opt out for data repurposing and data collection across, across I, I, the web. I, I do think, Jane, your first point was the right one. It, it's almost impossible to imagine this getting through. They haven't even got either side. Uh, on board in the Senate. Uh, oh, and so, no, they do. Wait, wait, wait. They, they, that's just wrong. They do. Right? They have, uh, yeah, yeah. Senator Roger Wicker in Wicker, uh, yeah. Mississippi, who's the ranking member, he's on board. Okay, so they've got yeah, the but ranking member, but they don't don't have the Democrat. Uh, I mean, they don't have the Democrat. But they've got yeah. the Democrat and the Republican on the House side. Yes, they do. And they've, they've got buy-in from the House leadership. White House is supposed to be engaged. So this is not a trivial step forward, at least I don't think. And I think the substance is largely irrelevant, even though some Democrats are not happy with the substance. I think the real breakthrough is on preemption and private right of action. Uh, that could be. Where, where but, but, the, the, the Democrats have normally not gone along with this level of preemption. All of the state privacy laws, of general privacy laws, are gone. There's a list of 16 exemptions to preemption. 
everything that's narrow, like the BIPA law in Illinois, is saved, and general consumer protection laws are saved. But all of the, the general state privacy laws are gone, and they won't be coming back if this becomes law. So I, I do think it's got some legs. On the private rights of action, they allow suits. After four years, you can bring a private right of action. And uh, what I like about it is you can only bring it for compensatory damages and reasonable right. attorney's fees, which no, I think no is very good. No punitive damages, and, and the companies are given 45 days to cure violations. So this looks pretty good. Now, the Democrats, I mean, Schatz, for example, Senator Schatz says it does, it's no good. It's just the same old, same old. Uh, yeah, it's uh, not Campbell the same seems, old. <laughs> Cantwell seems to want to pursue her own bill, but she needs 60 votes to do it. So I think this bill is the action. And, and the question yeah, but, but she only needs one vote to stop the House bill, I think, and it's hers. Uh, I don't see how, well, how it, something it, moves it, forward without her. If she doesn't want to move it, it doesn't move it. But think of what their choice is right now. And right. Senator Cruz is likely going to take over as chair of the Commerce Committee. He's thought to be hostile to privacy. If the Democrats say this isn't good enough, then that means basically no privacy legislation for at least two years and probably more. So that's yep. their dilemma. And so I think there may be some harsh choices they have to make in the, in the next month or so. And making harsh choices in the next month or so is improbable, in my view. The calendar is not on their side. And it gets easier and easier for partisan concerns, even ones that don't make a lot of sense, to, to stall progress. So that's, that's yeah. just my There's... guess about how this works. Yeah, there is one, one thing I really like about the bill, though. It does incorporate something that the Uniform Law Commission tried to incorporate too, which is like a safe harbor mechanism. So where it's unclear, there'll be plenty of times where it's unclear how to implement the rules, right? And an industry can basically start a technical compliance program or a tech or a compliance guideline procedure that asks the FTC to basically review what they're going to do and, and give it a yay or nay. And so it creates these safe harbors. And I think that's very valuable to allow some amount of you know certainty going forward for, for, for companies. So do you but think still guys on the think... substance, I think it's just too protective. I don't think people in this area realize how much content is bankrolled by behavioral advertising, right? So uh, anything that basically prohibits behavioral advertising, which is what this would do because it doesn't even allow for, you know, differential treatment is just going to really fundamentally change the internet that we have. So we, we would know that if this is unsustainable economically for the behavioral ad community, if Google and Facebook are against it, do we know where they yeah. are? Well, but the thing is, I actually don't think that they're the ones who have the most to lose. It's the publishers. It's the end. It's the websites, right? It's the websites that get the yeah they, uh, they will 60%. lose their income, but yeah. Google and Facebook are in a position to tell them that they're going to lose the income and to mobilize them if they're opposed to this, and it's their business. It's it, it, it's basically an opt out for for targeted ads, and the question is whether consumers will actually act on that. And there there may be a I mean you mentioned Jane that there's a you know, there's no ability to, to do purchases, but some of the companies can provide incentives, special offers for people to accept targeted ads. Uh, right. And then, Through then, like loyalty programs, right? Loyalty programs. And, and so yeah. there may be some mechanism whereby you can continue to have the targeted ads, 
but it'll just cost Google and Facebook a little bit more. They'll have to pay something more for it than they do now. And yeah, I, I think largely the substance of this thing is not really the issue at this point. I think they've taken the sting out of many of the older provisions. I think the real question is whether the Democrats can live with this compromise as something that is far less than what they wanted out of a privacy law, but maybe the best they can do for the foreseeable future. That's the game. And, you know, they're going to have to get 60 votes to, to do it. So it's got to be all the Dems. Can they get 10 Republicans? I don't know. It's going to be close. But that's the, that, that's the game. So what's the contribution of the California Privacy Agency's new draft regs to this? Uh, does it look as though those regs are scaring industry into thinking they'll take any kind of preemption they can get as long as they don't have to live with these regs? Well, I mean, I don't know, because to me, so Mark and I might differ on this, but to me, the substance of the federal bill does matter, because if it's just as onerous as the California law, then that should be a reason in itself to oppose it, even even if it's otherwise sound in terms of enforcement mechanisms and preemption and whatnot. So to me, it doesn't look that different. So what the California regs did is clarify, for example, that data controllers need to recognize opt-out preference signals. So that was a big deal in California, but that exact idea is incorporated into the federal bill anyway. California's draft regs are also making some headway on like dark patterns. So they're making clear that there's, they intend to enforce using CPRA to go after you know, websites that pre-select certain options or kind of subvert user autonomy, as they put it. They make clear that advertising networks can't be treated as service providers or mere contractors. So there's the third parties that require explicit, timely notice. So actually, I think the biggest difference uh, might be actually related to this notice. Like, I think the California new regs are, are going to require websites to look a lot like what they look like in Europe. So lots of notices in lots of places. Lots and, of garbage to click through to yeah, get to yeah, what you right. want to read. Yeah. Yeah. The privacy pop-up things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. The, the bite of person privacy law also tries to tackle anti-discrimination within algorithms. So, you know, race and gender bias from algorithmic processing. And that to me is a huge topic that is covered in like one paragraph in the bill. And so I hope that the, at least, uh, you know, if this does seem viable, I hope they remove that because it needs a lot more clarity and thinking. But you just touched on one of Stuart's hot button topics. Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, yeah, <laughs> she did it deliberately. She, she wants another five minutes for this uh, uh, conversation. But, uh, yeah, His uh, blood pressure it's... hasn't been raised enough. Come on. Let's hear, let's hear him curse today. <laughs> hey, I'm kicked back. I'm in California. Okay. Yeah. Actually, why don't we turn to, the, to a couple of updates, which are sort of more than just updates uh, on stories we've covered. One, the Costa Rica ransomware crisis and then I want to go back to the anti-surveillance regs that the Commerce Department put up. Dave, it's really interesting that Conti, which we thought was on its last legs and may yet be, is doing this big campaign as though they were a government attacking the government of Costa Rica, tying up their entire health system and all their pharmacy data to get tens of millions of dollars in ransom. And there's a lot of suggestion among the cognoscenti that this is just a, a a stall. It's kind of a ransomware theater 
to make people think that Conti's still in business as it sneaks out the back door and uh, moves all of its capability to other actors so that it won't take as much heat as it's been taking. You might be completely right there. So the article I thought was best on this subject came, you know, as you might imagine, from Krebs on Security. And essentially just weeks after Costa Rica declared a state of emergency because they got hacked by Conti, the Russian ransomware group, they also have now had their National Health Service hacked by Hive, which is another Russian group that many say is just cover for Conti doing it again. And, you know, according to Krebs, it looks like like prescription, medical files, and especially in rural areas, were very affected. And this really does beg the question of what effect it's going to have on the population. And I would just point out that people really do die from not receiving the right medication when this kind of thing happens in hospitals all over the world, right? So anytime people say, oh, it's the first time someone's, you know, directly been, you know, killed by, you know, ransomware, I think we're sort of missing the larger picture where if you disrupt the medical system, it has a huge effect. So I, I spent some time this morning looking to see if I could find any good news for Costa Ricans. And I honestly, I could not. I could not find an update that said that they somehow managed to get their system back up or that they'd paid off the ransomware teams or in any way, like, had gotten out from under this hammer, which I think is really unfortunate. And, you know, we have this in the sort of the category of breaking news, but realistically, we need a, a deeper analysis of how we can help protect our allies and our supply chains and what it means for a non state proxy actor to go head to head with a state in cyber and i think it's this is one of those stories that's going to end up getting really analyzed very closely in sort of the international law international relations journals i think in the years to come yeah the argument that uh, this is all just theater includes the argument that they don't even want the money that they want the crisis so that they get coverage as still alive while they are actually populating other organizations with technology that is not clearly tied to Conti in the past. So that would be particularly disturbing that they would launch something like that that is a crisis for an entire nation just as a way of covering their tracks as they rebadge their attack. And I think especially when you look at the particular targets they're hitting, you know, the health targets do have severe you know, ramifications. And it's just, yeah. it is sort of hard to watch. So the, the, the story I wanted to come back to, because I know you care about this, is the Commerce Department rules on surveillance, malware, intrusion software, because there was a story in NextGov that said basically that the Commerce Department didn't get that, that many comments and was generally disposed to accommodate, uh, again, a little bit these comments, but they got a comment from Microsoft that they uh, didn't quite blow off, but that they did not make a change in the Reg 4. And Microsoft's argument, if I remember, was basically, look, we have conversations about cybersecurity through our bug bounty program and, and through people reporting vulnerabilities all the time. And if we can't start having detailed technical conversations about how that particular exploit would work until we have verified that this person is not affiliated with a hostile government, 
we're never going to be able to have the kinds of programs that we are running today. And essentially, the Commerce Department said, hey, you'll figure it out. We'll write some FAQs about what a, a red flag would be and how to do your uh, due diligence, and you'll be fine. I thought Dave probably has a better feel for who's right about this than anybody else. And so I, I wanted him to come back and talk a little bit about Microsoft's comment and Commerce's reaction. Well, who's right and who's wrong is really... I don't even know if it's relevant in this conversation. So that's the first step. But I, th I think it's, it's worth looking at some of the things Microsoft said. Now, far be it from me to agree wholeheartedly with Microsoft on the podcast. But in this very right. particular case, I definitely do. And some of the terms that they use, you know, are they sort of thank BIS for recognizing that the prior rule was overbroad. But then they also say, we remain concerned. Given confusion as to what is and is what not and what isn't allowed for activity that may be subject to licensing, which at this stage is undeterminable, we have concerns that the license process for technologies that do not fit neatly into a particular category of use is extremely cumbersome. That's actually really harsh language coming from Microsoft about something that is this complicated. And I think the important stuff here is this rule went final. The article from NextGov by Marianne Baksh talks a little bit about it. It went final on Thursday. And I think that sort of is, is the buried lead in the article. And this is realistically the first time the United States has implemented the Wassenaar arrangements, exciting cyber tools regulations. And it includes an exception, the Authorized Cybersecurity Exports Exception, aka ACE, which is, to put it fairly, extremely complicated. So... What, what we're looking at right here is what are the downsides when you take an export control rule, which normally would talk about technology, and now it's completely about end users and end use, which is what you're yeah. going to see for almost all emerging technology. That's realistically a very scary thing if you're used to doing you know, policy in technology areas where it relates to law, because these are laws. Right. So, and, and, and by and large, the, the tech community says we make tools. Sometimes they're used well. Sometimes they're used badly. Don't uh, focus on us. Don't impose these obligations on us because we can't tell you how our end users are going to use this. You need to regulate them. This is very much the same Silicon Valley and content moderation. Don't tell us what to do. Prosecute our users. And it's not selling anymore. I think it's not that it's not selling. I mean, if you read this regulation, it has they've really bent backwards to accommodate industry. So that part is true, right? The, the fact is, yeah. BIS and the U.S. government has really done something that you didn't see any of the Europeans do. The Europeans were solely about discriminatory enforcement, right? And in this particular right. case, the Americans were like, we are going to put together something so complex, only an alien artificial intelligence could understand it but there will be you can sort of be like the, there are some sets some norms of behavior that are going to be fine and you know i think microsoft's comments are going to be everybody's comments soon which are we don't understand what's allowed and not allowed because this is not sort of understandable and we would like it cleared up that what we want to do is always allowed and ideally the government is going to say okay but they're not so in this case, what happened is they're not okay. 
right? Like they're like, you can't just coordinate with Chinese government users for doing bug bounties. We're not going to let you do that. There is going to be a hard line there, which I think is very interesting. We haven't seen the implications of what that means yet. Yeah, because if the Chinese will play, there's some great bug finders there. Well, we know for a fact that they are way ahead on a lot of things. Log4j, I think, taught us a very important lesson. Coordination in some of these areas where we can increase some sort of you know, strategic stability of the internet is super important. And what this is saying is that if you're going to do that, you have to get a license from the Commerce Department, which is going to be a very interesting future. I think we're all excited to see, see that future. Well, we will be back uh, next week to talk about the future. Dave, thanks. Jane, Mark, it was great to have you. We are coming down to the decision on who we want to have working for the podcast uh, as an intern paid. And so if you know somebody who ought to be working for the Cyber Law Podcast, send their CV or bio to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 410 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you commercial-free by Steptoe & Johnson. Mm-hmm.